This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I'm Dave Moten, I'm the author of Mindframe, and I'm the narrator of all of the chapter episodes, and with me as always is Brent Van Tassel, the producer and social media extraordinaire partner that I have. Um, He's also one of the founders of the Podbelly Podcast Network, and we are a Podbelly original, so if you want to check out some really cool podcasts, go over to podbelly.com and you should be able to find plenty of good stuff. This is chapter 30. We're going to be getting back into Teddy and see where he left off. But before I give a summary of where we left Teddy, I do also want to say thank you to those of you who are patrons. And I want to give a quick push for those of you who aren't to check out patreon.com slash mindframe podcast for just a dollar a month. You get our bonus sit down episodes, myself, uh, Zach Smith and Brent uh, sit down and we talk about the technology, the mysteries, the writing process, sci-fi in general, um, everything about the current uh, issue or episode that we're, that we're uh, covering. Um, it's all there. It's there every month. And then there's also some, uh, some giveaways and some swag at higher up levels. So definitely consider uh, giving a donation. If you like the show, um, that's a really, really good way to support it um, is to go to patreon.com slash mindframe podcast. So, Last we saw Teddy, he uh, had been uh, allowed to remember his dreams outside of his mind frame because of the alpha, and he was uh, sort of reliving his past when he was at the the Naval Academy in San Diego, and uh, his roommate, of course, was Mariel Barbeau. He hung out with Rooney, he did some various stuff, and at the last minute in the chapter, they decided that they should go and they should get the framer test to see if they were psychically active and if they could perhaps be framers, even though neither one of them wanted to be framers. So he hopped on his bike, he rode down to campus, and he met with the strange man Kubo, who was a retired uh, framer who had to get out of it because he was starting to suffer from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And where we left Teddy, he was just uh, given the papers to, to sign to agree to take the test, and the test was just about to start. And that is where we find Teddy when we start with Chapter 30. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you uh, after the chapter. Chapter 30. Teddy. 2125. Kubo walked past the sitting area and the wet bar of his small, odd office. The strange space served several million people of one of the major branches of WorldGov, every person between Los Angeles and Tijuana. But it had only one employee, and sitting there made Teddy feel like he wasn't in a formal workplace, but had instead been dropped into a British pub at one-tenth scale. But then again, maybe that was part of the test or a psychological element needed for the test. Or maybe it was a set piece designed just for Teddy's test. Anything was possible with this mystic bureau of messengers, and the endless possibilities were officially making Teddy paranoid with wonder. Kubo reached the back door to his office. Teddy presumed the actual framing test would occur on the other side of the simple door. Kubo stood, tall and lean, the physique of an Atlantean hard to find. Not that Teddy especially wanted him to hide it. Kubo was a handsome, fit, unique man. Teddy, though, suddenly realized the man was a framer and wondered if he could sense sexual attraction no matter how small. Would that bias the framing test? Kubo calmly opened the door at the rear of the office. It was exactly as nondescript as the front door had been. He indicated that Teddy should enter, and Teddy did. This door, like the front door, led into a small foyer that was too narrow to be of any use and barely allowed a door to fully open inside of it. 
It felt like an airlock, a redundancy of architecture meant to keep a certain atmosphere on one side or the other. After Teddy entered, Kubo gave a gentle nod. He said, Your sacrifice honors us, and slowly shut the door, locking Teddy into whatever came next. What sacrifice? The saying riled Teddy and made the test take on an ominous tone. Or, perhaps worse yet, the sacrifice would come with the result of the test and whatever the hell came afterwards. The second door, two steps away from the first, was a pure, pearlescent white. It had a hand scanner instead of a knob and no visible hinges. Teddy looked back over his shoulder, saw that he truly was alone in here, and placed his hand on the scanner. It emanated a gentle, deep ping, and it pulsed a soft green color before fading back to the alabaster white of the rest of the surface. The door popped cracked just a few centimeters, and Teddy pushed it open. It swung and revealed an odd room. The light suggested twilight, but Teddy couldn't identify a source of illumination. It seemed that light was hidden behind clever curves in the wall, though no distinct curves or bright spots were apparent. The walls were rounded, giving the room an oblong shape that was hard to pin down. Distances and angles were very difficult to measure in the strange lighting and problematic angles of the slope. It was a peculiar ovoid that revealed very little about itself to the observer. Teddy was normally good at judging distances, spaces, and measurements, but not here. The room made him wonder if the very architecture was part of the test, design a room that took away one of somebody's natural gifts. But a test that took that much specialization into account would be impossibly expensive, though not many tests were ever given. And maybe he was asleep, being tested in the same dreams the framers and messengers saw. Enough, though. Enough. The speculation would drive him mad. Teddy had to focus on the now, not the what if. The floor was the only easy thing to gauge because it was comprised of small white pebbles. Teddy stepped in and the ground made a crunching sound as if the stones were breaking up under his weight. He bent down and saw white on the bottom of his shoes. Salt. He was walking across thick rocks of salt. He stuck his hand in it to find the floor beneath, but it seemed to be salt as far down as he could dig without making a spectacle of it. The ceiling seemed more flat than the curve of the rest of the place and was covered in hundreds of thick, dangling ropes. The ropes were several inches around, perhaps two to four feet long, and they looked very old and sun-bleached. They were the stuff of a beachside eatery's decor. However, they were tied in knots of varying complexity, from overhand knots to Spanish roses and even a tattered noose dangling down. On the floor in the middle of the room, a wide, flat, beige cushion rested on the salt. Laying on the ground in front of the cushion were several short lengths of the rope. Every other one was twisted into a unique knot. There was nothing else in the room. The salt, the ropes on the ceiling, the cushion, and the handful of cords laying on the floor. The ceramic door swung shut behind Teddy as it sealed behind him. He heard the same ping as he heard when it first unlocked. The details of the framing test started to stir in Teddy's mind once again. The paperwork he'd signed said he could never speak of it, under penalty not of a downvote, but of being remanded to prison for the rest of his life. It was a state secret. He realized, even though he knew several people who had claimed to take the framing test, Nobody ever talked about it. 
He'd never seen it depicted in the media, and he never even thought to wonder what it entailed. Even when he and Mariel decided to take it, he had called Kumo to make the appointment, and he rode his bike to the test itself, he never really wondered what the test was. Only now that it had started, did that level of obfuscation bother him. It was as if he suddenly discovered the ultimate taboo of his time. He walked forward, hearing the crunch of the salt and feeling it rattle bone by bone all the way up to his teeth. He reached up to touch one of the ropes hanging from the ceiling, only to discover that they were higher up than he thought. He could have reached it on his tiptoes, maybe, but felt foolish because he assumed he was being watched by Kumo. The paperwork he signed said he'd be closely monitored biologically, mentally, and internally, and agreed to have his mind explored by outside forces while both conscious and unconscious. There was no desk, no paper, no classroom, no tablet or computer. All that remained was the cushion. He sat on it and crossed his legs, then uncrossed them. The soles of his tennis shoes cut into his legs the way he was sitting. They seemed in the way. He took off the shoes and then his socks. The salt felt cool and was so dry it somehow seemed a little bit slick. Teddy placed his socks inside his shoes and set it all behind him so they weren't a visual distraction. He looked at the ropes before him on the ground. He counted ten. Suddenly, there was a deep rumble that felt like an earthquake or an explosion nearby. He heard no sound but felt the bass deep in his chest. The salt vibrated in a circular pattern from the center of the room. He turned to the door in a start and realized he couldn't find it. There was no seam, no hinges, no palm scanner, and he had been turned around in this ovoid. The boom happened again, and then again, the salt making different patterns each time. His first reaction, being from Southern California, was earthquake. But there would have been an alert from the system several minutes ago, and it wouldn't repeat itself so many times. His heart was starting to race. He didn't know what was happening or if this was even part of the test. His mind turned to recent deviant bombings on a flight school in Prague. The academy here would be a perfect target. There was a fourth boom that was even deeper. As Teddy's pulse quickened, he called out to Kumo, Is everything all right out there? There was no response, but the temperature plummeted in the room in a chilling instant, as if the atmosphere were being wicked into outer space. The fifth rumble came, and Teddy realized he could either panic or do something different. He picked up one of the knots on the ground in front of him. There was no sixth rumble. The framing test for Theodore Brown had begun. The strange room that made up the framing test backdrop was an enigma. Teddy had been inside of it long enough for him to have a strong idea of the shape and dimensions, but he couldn't pin it down. He couldn't shake the eerie feeling that the room didn't want him to know its scope, or much worse, that a human mind couldn't fathom the true shape. Maybe he was inside of a tesseract or a gloam, if he remembered his fourth dimensional physics classes, something outside of normal human perceptual experience. He sat on the cushion and nestled himself into the floor of salt. The mineral had a cooling effect, like it was absorbing the heat from above. On the floor in front of him were the ten ropes, whitened by time. Five had knots, and beside each knotted twine was an equal length that had no knot. He didn't know what the scope of the test was, but since Kumo hadn't read a prompt or given any direction, Teddy assumed this was how it started, with explosions, salts, and ropes. Settling in on the cushion, 
He looked at the first rope. He supposed it was first since it was the farthest on the left. Then he wondered if that was so. That was an organizational assumption that his human western brain held. Perhaps there was a different order for a framer or for an alien from the Keldemokratia. But that way, madness lied. He couldn't doubt his every decision. To the left rope it was. His first thought was of Alexander the Great, cutting the Gordian knot. But the blank lines of rope meant his test probably wasn't unraveling knots, but in duplicating them. The first three were actually quite simple. He'd studied a lot of knots at the academy as part of his training with the ocean fleet. He picked up the first rope. It was lush and soft in spite of its sun-worn, bleached appearance. He tied an oysterman stopper and laid it beside the original on the salt floor. Then he moved on to the next ropes. He did a double overhand noose on one and then a more complex Matthew Walker knot. The fourth was not one he'd learned. It was a complex thing designed to get a rope to store onto itself and make it easier for a soldier or an outdoorsman to carry. He examined the sample for a while, and once he set his mind to it, the knot fell together on the rope without much difficulty. The fifth looked like a gnarly knob that you could play baseball with. It had no discernible start or stop with the ends tucked neatly into the center. He started there, in the center, by placing the two tips of the rope against each other and then just sort of played around. This one took him a little bit of time, but he'd have guessed no longer than 20 minutes to figure it out. He got frustrated in the middle of it, but something about the lighting and the roundness and the cooling salt kept him grounded. Surprising himself, he pulled the last cinch of it to make it come into a ball shape. He tossed it into the air and caught it in a brief, stale celebration. Suddenly, all of the ropes hanging from the ceiling twisted and writhed as if alive. The hundred knots above his head had all come untied and were swaying as if under a light breeze. Had he passed the test? It seemed like tying five knots was a strange thing to examine someone's psychic ability, and it seemed unfairly in his favor since he studied knots as a future GPF fleet man. The room pinged the sound of the door unlocking. He looked where he had thought the door was, but there was nothing there. An extra scan of the room and he saw the green glow of a hand scanner. He walked through the salt, and as he got closer, he could see the faint slit that defined the edge of the door, obscured by the dim twilight of this place. He pushed the door open, realizing that the test was all about ropes and that he had either just failed or passed it. When the door swung, it didn't open into the small airlock antechamber, but directly into a similar room, another ovoid with dim lights. The floor here was made of a black volcanic sand and the air smelled of a swamp at night. Life rotting to create new life in a dense, rich mud and wafts of sweet decay. The ceiling was covered in strings of thickly cut crystals, each as long as the ropes in the previous room. In the middle of the floor was a potter's wheel and a small craft table. On it sat several clay sculptures. There were matching pairs of several items. Two short pots, two taller pots, two long vases, two rudimentary forms of a human head with no facial details, and two perfectly spun spheres. The clay that made them all was a rich red and was still wet from the work of being made. Most notably, however, was Marielle Barbeau. She sat at the potter's wheel and was washing clay off of her hands in a small bucket of water on the table. 
I didn't know our tests were at the same time, Teddy said. They aren't, Mariel retorted. Mine was two hours before yours. Did you come early? No, Teddy said. You texted me that you were done with yours when I was riding to campus. Well, Mariel said, indicating the clay with her hands as if to say, I'm not done. Those are yours, Teddy asked of the sculptures. Half of them. I didn't even know I could do that, she said. Suddenly, yellow and red spikes of colors started to run along the white walls in jagged patterns. They looked like readings from a medical machine or a polygraph. They built in frequency until they morphed into epic trees of lightning. It looked as if the wall was simply a monitor of some sort, but when the colored lines and arcs would spasm enough to hit the ceiling, the crystals would take them on. A physical lightning would fly through the gems dancing. A new pulse would start on the wall, rapidly redouble in size, and hit the ceiling again with an electrical discharge. It slowly grew more intense until Teddy was ducking his head due to the amount of energy firing off above him. The rainbow of electricity started to arc downward, and Teddy had to fully jump away several times to avoid the discharges until one finally hit him. There was no pain or electric shock. It simply coursed through his body, changed to the color green, and then left him, entering the wall where it propagated some more green among the red and yellow and grew on itself. He watched an arc of it hit Mariel on the arm and flow through her whole body. He could see it roll through her nervous system. The red raining from the crystals had turned into a deep blue energy inside of Mariel. It glowed from within like an x-ray machine, her spine, her nerve endings, the neural paths in her brain, and then it leapt out, hugged the wall, and spread. Over time, they were both pelted by yellow or red energy, and it would leave them changed, purple this time, pink the next. Then the smell of the swamp changed to something intoxicating. It was like a rare perfume that could stir animal sexuality in you, something primal, pheromonal. It grew more intense in its scope and beauty with each bolt of energy that would pass through them. Teddy saw a wave of rainbow electricity grow so intense along the ceiling crystals that he could no longer look at them with the naked eye. Something different was happening this time. The intense bolt shot down to the ground in a myriad of hungry tendrils, and then all of the multiple colors merged into a perfect white and bounced back into the wall. Smoke rose from the black sand floor where the bolt had hit, and Kubo was standing in the smoke as if mystically summoned. He looked at Teddy first, then Mariel. His expression was impossible to gauge. The rainbow lightning intensified again, and the wonderful primal scent grew stronger. When the bolt struck the ground, another person appeared. A woman in her twenties, wearing a framer's uniform. She seemed not to be able to see anyone or anything in the room. The ovoid was starting to rumble with noise. A low thrum that was changing in frequency as the colors shifted and the smell slightly morphed. The sound was intense and almost musical. It provided both harmony and discord, like really good jazz if it were being played by an electrical transformer and alien fingers. Is this normal? Mariel asked in perfect unison with Teddy as he asked the same thing. Another burst of color and another framer stood there, staring off into space as if occupied by something else. Then there were three more bolts and three more people. These three were all conscious and startled at being in this very strange room. 
As each person arrived, the strength of the energy storm intensified, the smell became more intoxicating, and the music of the rumbling room grew more beautiful with multiple layered sounds. Within minutes, the ovoid room was filled with shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder bodies, no place to stand. But somehow, nobody was afraid or upset. Some were completely unaware, and those who were conscious of the room giggled with each energy burst or inhaled deeply at the scent which had grown to be the most beautiful thing he had ever smelled in his life. He couldn't define it, give it a flavor profile other than life and beauty and sex and youth and victory. Pressure started to grow as more bodies popped into the space. The light and the rumble and smell merged into the most gorgeous cacophony. It wasn't just the most beautiful thing Teddy had ever experienced, it was a far measure beyond the most beautiful thing he could have comprehended just a few minutes ago. He tried to find Mariel, but she was lost in the storm. More people popped in, most in black robes, some civilians, and one in a crimson robe. Teddy was pinned against the cold wall that strobed with the life energy of dozens of bodies. He was squeezed harder and harder until he felt the wall crack like the shell of an egg. The storm of sound and scent and currents burst away in all directions like a cloud of utter exquisite beauty. There was no more room, no more sound or scent or people, only Teddy. He hung in the void, watching colors dance away from him. He felt as if he were being watched. There was something behind him. He felt its immense power and its deep gaze. It was a thing of a scope so grand he could only call it a god. It knew all there was to know about Teddy, about everyone. He knew what it was, though not how it could be. It was every single living human and dolphin on or around Earth. Their neural nets, their cellular devices, their sweat and pheromones and voices, their conjoined mythology and semiotics, their bioelectricity and quantum signatures. Teddy turned in the void and dared face this being. It was a planet-sized orb of pure energy that danced and swarmed, that formed tendrils and wove into itself in knots. Every color of the rainbow, every sound, every chemical signal, it formed a single focused life. And this life reached with the smallest of its incalculable tendrils and touched Teddy, using the care you might take to get a ladybug to crawl from your arm or to your finger for a better view of it without accidentally wrenching off its tiny legs. The tendrils tucked into each other, forming an ever-morphing sphere that both surrounded the planet Earth and shot through it. And always one single tendril, the largest of them all, pointed upward and away. It pointed toward the sun. Teddy could feel something pass through this earth god and into him. A longing, a desire, a need for something it had never knew existed. It was lonely. And as the smallest bit of it aimed Teddy in the direction it was looking, he saw not the sun, but the quadrant called Lariat Space. This being, this god, this amalgamation of all that was, showed Teddy the one thing that held its incalculable interest. The lariat was closing. Eventually, Teddy smelled the simple tang of citrus in the air. He had somehow made it back to Kubo's office. He had no memory of leaving the presence of the Earth God 
or leaving the testing chamber. But there he was, sitting in the chair, and Kubo had just cut a lime wedge. The framer set a rock glass with fizzy clear liquid and said lime wedge on the small table next to Teddy. Teddy picked it up and fingered the ice in the glass. He licked his finger and tasted gin. He downed the drink in four yawning gulps until his throat was raw from the cold and the crisp. His shoes were on the table, with his socks tucked inside of them. They were covered with a fine powder of salt. He stared at his naked feet and saw grains of black volcanic sand hugging the spaces between his toes. Take your time, Teddy. You scored a 91. That's higher than anyone I've ever tested. I'm sure you saw it. And with that score, I'm sure it saw you. And now you have some things to figure out about yourself and your place in the life world. Your future. Its future. Would you like another? Kubo asked of the drink. Gradually, Teddy said, I think... I think I just need to ride my bike by the ocean. Yes, Kubo agreed. The ocean is a nice reminder of it. Just know that I'm here should you need to talk. The NDA you signed allows me to discuss your test with you if we're located within designated facilities such as my office. Anytime, literally, day or night. Even if you just want a quiet place to have a drink or somewhere to safely stare at a wall and silently contemplate the face of Gaia, our one true God, and your small place in her incredible purpose. And with the end of chapter 30, we see that Teddy scored a 91, which is a pretty high score out of a scale of 100, uh, but we might not know exactly what he just got tested on or exactly what he saw, but we will return to Teddy and see what happens uh, as a continuation of the test and where he and Mariel end up going. As always, we want to thank you for listening. If you're into my writing, you can find uh, my other writing um, and the writing of Zach Smith on mindframepodcast.com. If you go to the merch store, you can find our books. You can find some shirts and some socks and all kinds of other cool stuff on there as well. That's a great way to support the show if, if you're a fan. And another great way to support the show is to simply uh, share, to like, Whenever the, the posts get pushed out by Brent, uh, just give it a share, put it on your own wall, share it in your own timeline, um, rub your friends' noses in it and get more people to see it. That's the most organic way for a podcast to grow, and that's probably one of the most helpful ways for a podcast to grow. So we would appreciate a quick share if you find it in your heart. We are also a member of the Podbelly Podcast Network. And if you go to podbelly.com, you can find such other great uh, podcasts as Ectoplasm, the Ectoplasm show. It's a show about the paranormal. I've been on it a couple of times. So if you're interested in my own ghost stories and tales of things that go bump in the night, you can search their catalog uh, for my name. And also Rock and Roll Beer Guy. He does a really great show and he gets some pretty cool guests on there. So that's another show that might be worth checking out. As always, we want to thank our patrons, and if you're interested in the sit-downs or just giving us some support and some love, you can go to patreon.com slash mindframepodcast. And uh, if you want to follow us on social media, remember on Facebook, we are at mindframepodcast. On Twitter, we are mindframepod. And on Instagram, we are the mindframepodcast. So thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. And remember, the lariat is closing. <laughs>